Chapter Forty of the Mystery of the Ravenspurs by Fred M. White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty, The Iron Cage. Chigorsky made a long pause before he resumed his story. His nerves appeared to require composing. It was impossible to shake off the horror of the past. At length he went on again. I saw the cruel light flame into the eyes of the princess. I saw that she was pleased and yet sorry to learn our decisions. She gave a sign and we were brought nearer to her. "'You understand what your refusal means?' she said. "'You have been here long enough to know how carefully our secrets are guarded and also how we punish those who try to read them.' where are those scripts we had no scripts and i said so as a matter of fact such formula and papers as we had managed to become possessed of had been smuggled beyond lassa to ralph ravenspur's servant elphick who had conveyed them to a place of safety but my statement was without effect strip them she said and put them in the baths we were going to learn, then, what those cages were for. "'There is no need to remove our clothing,' I cried. "'We will do it ourselves.' I was afraid our revolvers should be discovered, or the cartridges be rendered useless by immersion. Ralph seemed to understand, for, like myself, he quickly discarded his robes and slippers and professed himself to be ready. Then the grating was raised, and we were placed on our backs in a shallow bath formed in the shape of a coffin, and not more than ten inches deep. As first the baths were empty, but gradually they were filled with water, until we had to raise our faces and press them against the bars to breathe. I thought that we were to be suffocated in this shallow water a dreadful idea that filled me with stifling anxiety, but there was worse to come. Again Tchigorsky paused and wiped his brow. The suspense was torture. The terrible uncertainty of what was going to happen was agony. Imagine being drowned with a bare half-inch of water over your lips and nostrils. I turned my head a fraction of an inch on one side, and then I saw that the water could not rise quite high enough to drown me without overflowing the edge of the bath. Evidently this was but the first chapter in the Book of Lessons. We could breathe by placing our faces against the bar. What next? There was no occasion to ask the question. Though my heart was drumming like the wings of an imprisoned fly, and though there was the roar of a furnace in my ears, I could make out the crack and rattle of machinery, and the bars over the cage began to move. My face, to escape the water, was so closely pressed to the bars that the friction was painful. The bars slid along, and as they did so, I remembered the long projecting ends which were glowing yellow and blue in the braziers. My heart ceased drumming and then seemed to stand still for the moment, 
I had guessed the riddle. A second later, and the horizontal bars over my face were white hot. Here was the situation, then. I had either to press my face against those cruel bars or drown in a few inches of water. Could the mind of a man imagine a more diabolical torture? I cried aloud. I believe my friend did also, but I cannot say. My face flinched involuntarily from the scar of the blistering iron. I held my breath till the green and red stars danced before my eyes. Flesh and blood could stand it no longer, and I was literally bound to raise my head. Into the flesh, as you have seen for yourself, those hot barriers pressed, while I filled my lungs with a deep draft of delicious air. But the agony was so great that I had to go down again. The water cooled the burns for the moment, but you can imagine how it intensified the agony afterwards. When I raised myself again, the bars were cool, but only for an instant, for they came hot once more, this time in a horizontal direction. The same ghastly business was enacted. Again there was the sense of semi-suffocation. Again the long draft of pure air and the pain from the bars. And then, while wondering, half delirious, how long it could last, something gave way and I fainted. That I deemed to be death, but it was nothing of the kind. When I came to, I was lying on the floor writhing in agony from my wounds. Fortunately, I had not lost my sight, nor had Ralph at that time. He was to discover later that the injuries received were fatal to his eyes. He was lying by my side and groaning with pain like myself. A more hideous and more repulsive sight than my companion's face I never wished to look upon. And doubtless he had the same thoughts of me. But I did not think of that at the moment. We were alone. I staggered to my feet and across to the door. It was fastened, of course. For a time we were too maddened by pain to take heed of anything, but gradually reason came back to us. My first idea was of revenge. Ralph had grasped for his robes, and his revolver was in his hand. "'Heaven help the first man who comes in!' he yelled. Like a drunken lunatic, I applauded the sentiment. For a minute we were both mad as the drugged Malay who runs amuck. Fortunately, nobody did come in for some time, and gradually wiser counsel prevailed. We slipped into our garments and hid our revolvers. Then from raging madmen we passed to tears. We were so spent and exhausted that we cried like little children. But men like ourselves are not easily daunted. The pain was still great, but this only stimulated our desire to live and gain the better of those who had so cruelly used us. Later a priest conducted us into another room, where the princess awaited us. She smiled as she looked at our faces. 
that smile was nearly the end of her. Many a time since have I regretted that I didn't finish her career then and there. Had she betrayed the least sign of fear, I should have done so, and by so doing your people would have been saved many a bitter sorrow. "'At the expense of your life,' Geoffrey said. Chigorsky shrugged his shoulders. "'What matter?' he said. "'The few suffer for the many.' Well, as I was saying, the speaker paused suddenly as his eye caught something moving along the beach. It was the figure of a woman creeping along, as if in search of some missing object. She proceeded very slowly until she approached the spot where the boat lay filled and sunk, and then she paused abruptly. For a minute she stood fascinated by the sight. Then she flung her hands high in the air, and a bitter wailing cry escaped her. If she had been a fisherman's wife, suddenly brought face to face with the dead body of her husband or lover, her wail of anguish had not been more poignant. "'Who can she be?' Geoffrey asked. Chigorsky said nothing. The woman stood with her hands raised. As she turned and ran toward the cliffs, moaning as she went, Geoffrey started. "'Marion!' he said. "'Marion!' He would have dashed forward, but Tchigorsky restrained him. "'That is not your Marion,' he said. "'Your Marion does not dress like that.' Geoffrey looked again. It was Marion, and yet not Marion. It was the girl in the blue serge dress and red tam-o'-shanter who resembled her so strikingly. What did this girl know about him, and why did she stand wailing over his boat? He felt he must solve this mystery. "'Sit down,' Chigorsky said slowly. "'Sit down.' "'But,' Geoffrey cried, "'I insist upon knowing—' and spoiling everything. Sit down, I say, or I shall have to detain you. I don't fancy you would care to measure your strength with mine. Geoffrey dropped into his seat. Perhaps not, he said. I don't believe you want me to know who that girl is. I have heard worse guesses, Tchigorsky said dryly. End of chapter 40